in a way that takes us forever. All right, And the reason that's important is because these people, as we've talked about, that are reading this letter for the first time, are under severe persecution. They're at everywhere they're turned, it's a possibility that they're not going to make it. That the, they're going to get arrested and killed or imprisoned. And at every moment they need to be reminded that they can trust in the Lord. And what John is saying and what God is showing is that God takes care of His people. We need to understand because that gives us freedom to live, freedom to love, freedom to die for the gospel if necessary. Because God's power and protection extends even beyond physical death. His power is greater than all the power of hell and we need to know that. Um, When we know that, it gives us the assurance that allows us to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we know that God's going to take care of us no matter what comes into our life, it allows us to have a willingness to suffer persecution, um, ridicule, problems. It allows us to make it through. It gives us the ability to resist temptation because we remember that the here and now is not what is important. God's able to seal His servants and protect them from danger. Revelation falls into two parts, and that's the two parts of your outline there. And So I'm going to give you that, and then you can just fill in around it or stick it off to the side and say, I'm done for the night, whatever. All right. The first one is this. The first few verses, the first eight verses of chapter 7 of Revelation teach us that God protects His people. That God protects His people. Okay? So we're going to see in there how God takes, makes sure that everything happens like it's supposed to for His people, that He shields them from some things. And we're going to talk about how that protection for us is different than what God may see as protection. Okay? So what we consider for Him taking care of us is different than what God's perception of that may be. So we're going to look at that. Here's the second part. is God then receives praise for His protection. Those are the two parts of chapter 7. God protects His people. Then God receives praise for His protection. Now what we're going to see is that praise comes not only from the people whom are protected, or who are protected by Him, but it also comes from the host of heaven that are praising Him for His protection of us. Alright? Let's do a quick review of Revelation. Just remind ourselves where we are. Chapter 1, you had the introductory verses. Uh, verses 1 through 8. 9 through 20 was the passage where um, we have this glorified vision of who Christ is. Chapters 2 and 3 are letters to the churches from Uh, Jesus telling them about what they need to do. Then John is invited into the throne room in chapters 4 and 5. He sees worship unfold before his eyes in heaven. Chapter 6 is where the seals on that scroll begin to be broken. And as they're broken, things begin to happen on the earth, culminating at the end of chapter 6 with someone saying, Who can stand in the presence under the wrath of the Lamb? And so we come to chapter 7... And chapter 7 is really going to be like an interlude, uh, like a break in the action for a moment. It's an important chapter, and it's important to understand what's going on here, because in chapter 7, God seals the saints. It's important to understand who that is and what's going on, because in chapter 9, we'll see that those that are sealed will not be harmed. Um, Then we'll see in chapter 14 that that same group stands with Jesus redeemed on Mount Zion. 
So the fact that God seals His servants is an important thing. It's also important because when we get to chapter 13, Satan is going to mimic this. He's going to copy it. He's going to try to say, well, you sealed yours. I'm going to seal the people that are followers of mine as well. And that's where we get the mark of the beast. Alright? So he is mimicking in some ways what God is doing here. So whatever we determine the sealing to be here will have significance for what we think Satan is doing in chapter 13. Alright? So let's read Revelation chapter 7. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel who had the seal of the living God rise up from the east. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were empowered to harm the earth and the sea, Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the slaves of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulon. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. And 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell face down before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people robed in white and where did they come from? And I said, Sir, you know. And he told me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His sanctuary. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. There will no longer hearse. They will hunger. I don't know what hearse is. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them nor will any heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shelter them. He will guide them to the springs of living waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So you have this picture. Now, Remember a couple of weeks ago I told you that worship played a major role through the book of Revelation? We went a full chapter without any worship really showing up. And then we get to chapter uh, 7 and half the chapter is about worship. You're just going to see that over and over again. The first eight verses of this chapter tell us that God will protect His people. The focus of John's vision shifts in chapter end of chapter 6 from the wicked to what is happening to the people of God in chapter 7. John says in 7.1, after this. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean chronological order. 
Okay? So it doesn't necessarily mean that you've got chapter 6 and then naturally, chronologically, you've got chapter 7 sometime later. What it can mean, John really uses after this as kind of a um, literary device where he's saying, uh, the next thing I want to tell you. But what it can also mean is, while all this is happening in chapter 6, okay? While all this is going on. Chapter 7 is, this is what's happening to the wicked. Chapter 7 is, this is what's going on with God's people. So they're copying simultaneously or together, or even that this may precede in some way before that. John is not interested in giving us a timeline of activities that happen exactly in order. He's just interested in telling us the vision that he saw. Okay, And so what happens is, when it says after this, they come around the time of six. Six is this... this um, uh, and the six seals that are broken, you have things that are happening, progressing towards the end. And you get to the end of six. Remember, you get to the end of six, and it's like the end, right? And we've got a lot more chapters to go before we get to the final end. So we have to remember that there's some back and forth, some simultaneous action going on. Um, what we also have to understand is this is a worldwide phenomenon going on. It says in seven one that there were angels at the four corners of the earth with the four winds of the earth. All that basically means is that he is saying to them, it is worldwide. It is universal. This is going on at all places. And he's restraining all the stuff from coming. Okay, So it's, it's like we're working on to get things together. Uh, verse 2 and 3 tells us what they're waiting on. They're waiting on the sealing of the servants of God. Now we're going to get to in just a minute what that means and we'll go into a couple of questions that come after that. But what I want us to realize here is that once we hit chapter 8, the first trumpet is blown and trees are damaged on earth. Uh, chapter 8, verse 8, the second trumpet is blown and the sea is harmed. So what we have in this picture is this angel rising from the east. The seals on the scroll have been opened. God's people are being sealed in the midst of that. And what it says is that they had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. The um, scholars call this a word that I think is kind of cool. And you may not like it all, but just pretend you do for my sake. They call it a divine passive. Okay, This is what a divine passive is. It's not that we have a passive God. It just means that God sometimes allows things that are not the direct hand of His. Now, there's in Revelation we have a lot more of Him saying, Go. But in some ways he allows people or restrains people, but that all evil that happens does not come directly from him, but it doesn't catch him off guard either. And so the divine passive is an understanding for us. Um, God is sovereign over the for, of the God is sovereign over the harmful forces of the world. It's a way to state that God has ultimate control over something while at the same time distancing God from it. It teaches us that the harmful things that happen do not surprise God. Satan doesn't trick God. The world is not spinning out of God's control. God is in absolute control of everything that happens. Some things happen because he's given the ability to an agent he has appointed to accomplish his purposes. And what we have to understand is that no matter what he's allowed, 
God will eventually bring everything under His control and will have His way completely. God's purpose will be accomplished even if humans and demons act wickedly. What we have to realize is if God has promised to finish what He started and God is sovereign over everything, we can see that God's going to take care of us. God keeps His own. Not one will be lost. The ceiling in view here probably does not guarantee us physical safety. It does not guarantee complete emotional stability. It does not guarantee financial prosperity. But what it guarantees is that we will be maintained in Him and completed in Him. God protects His own. Now, here's the difference uh, that we can, maybe one way you can think of it. God's view of what it means to protect and take care of us could be different than our own view of what it means to be protected and taken care of. For instance... My two boys have a different view of what it means for me to take care of them than I have. Right? When we go to Target and there is a Lego they want, it is my job to take care of them and get that Lego. Now, it's not any easier when we take a trip to Dyersburg like we did this last weekend. Because guess what happens when my dad goes to Walmart with them? They get the Lego. Granddaddy takes care of them. My job as a parent is not to take care of them in that way necessarily. It's to make sure they have food, make sure that they have a roof over their head, that I provide for their needs, and they don't have any idea how buying them every Lego they ever wanted could take away from the food that's on the table. Right? But it can. Um, Last night, Another place this shows up is in discipline. Uh, Believe it or not, we do discipline our children. And believe it or not, they need it on a regular basis. Luke has gotten into this phase of he has just decided he's not going to eat what he doesn't want to eat. So last night we had some uh, chicken fried steak. And we had some uh, peas, black eyed peas. And we had some macaroni. And Luke ate the macaroni. That's all he wanted. And we gave him an option. At the end of the day, we said, listen, are we closing on the meal? We had some tears. We had some but moms, but dads. And I said, Luke, here's your choice. You can eat your black eyed peas and do what you want to do later. Or you can not eat them and you can go to bed. Those are your two choices. And so he chose to put the plate by the sink and go sit on his bed. And there was a consequence for tonight. There's a show he wants to watch that comes on on Wednesday nights. You can't watch it tonight after church if you don't eat your black eyed peas tonight. We're trying to teach him the consequences aren't just immediate. So he lets slip as he's putting his plate there. He goes, okay, I'll go downstairs. I don't think y'all remember tomorrow night anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so 
we were going to remember even more so then. Well, he realized we were serious about it, and later he came up and he said, Dad, I just wasn't hungry earlier. I'm hungry now. Can I eat those peas now? <laughs> yes, you can eat the peas. Because he realized we were, Eli was upstairs doing something he wanted to do. He was downstairs. Here's the thing. Me providing for him, taking care of him, those particular peas aren't going to make a huge difference in his life. But the principle of eating healthy is something we want to instill in him. And that's part of my providing for him is giving discipline to let him learn what it means to live a healthy life. Okay? He doesn't see that as taking care of him. He sees that as being mean. Right? Unreasonable. The truth is, sometimes, from our perspective, we're like Luke with the peas in the situation God brings into our lives. Or allows into our lives. And he's taking care of us completely. He's allowing things to shape us and to mold us. And all we care about is, I don't want to do that. What Revelation 7 teaches us is, God is sealing us from the ultimate thing that could get us. He has made us, when we have accepted who He is, He has sealed us and that we are always His. It ensures the preservation, preservation, preservation of the servants of God in their faith. God seals them in the sense that He keeps convincing them that He is trustworthy. He keeps compelling them to trust them. He makes sure they will always have compelling evidence to believe what He has said. There is comfort here for us, isn't there? You can't be confident that no matter how bad it gets, you will not suffer the smallest bit more than God allows. God will not allow the suffering to go beyond what you're able to bear. You can be confident that if God is allowing it, there is a purpose and a meaning behind it. You can be confident that God will never let you go. If you trust in Jesus, God has sealed you. Unbelief won't swamp your ship. This is better than any kind of invincibility cloak you could have. It says that whatever happens to you, whatever happens to you, God will save you. You are sealed. God will keep you. Satan will not be able to make God's people deny the faith. For us, we hear that. That's why God's always with me. For the first readers, they were worried that what if I get in a situation where they tell me, deny Christ or die. And their biggest concern wasn't, I don't want to die. Their biggest concern is, I don't want to deny Christ in that moment. And what he's saying is, I'm going to protect your testimony. It may mean your death on earth, but I'm going to protect it. You know Philippians 1.6? I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So give praise to God that He's going to save you. That He'll bring you through whatever trial you're facing. Rest in that. Cling to that. When you're tempted, throw it in Satan's face and say, God is going to take care of me. Then it moves on and says, when all that's happening, that God is going to seal them, it says that He heard the voices of 144,000, right? 12,000 from each tribe. So you tell me, 
Who have you heard the 144,000 are? Anybody know? Jewish. Okay, Jewish. Converts. Okay. I heard Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. That's their claim, right? That that's who they are. Right. Okay. Anybody else? Any other ideas out there you've heard? Okay, I'll give you some more that are out there. All right. Um, not just Jewish converts in general, but Jewish converts during last seven years on earth. Symbolic representation of all who are in Christ. All right, here's what I want you to do. On the sheet of paper, if you've got one, if you don't, just pretend right in the air. Write down what you think before we even talk about it. You think it is. You don't have a clue, just write a number. All right? Just not 144,000. I like that number. Okay? And then I'll tell you what I think when we get there. All right. Um, the list raises a couple of interesting questions before we get to the identity of who they are. Let me just say that, that in the absence of the Bible saying directly who it is, there is freedom in us to discuss it, and there's no way for us to be dogmatic about being absolutely right. Okay? So I'm going to give you my impression what I think, what I'm pretty confident in. But I said this to, we were talking as a staff the other day. I had a professor at Southwestern that said, I remember one day, I am firmly confident that 80% of what I believe is right. The problem is, I don't know that what 20% is wrong. So that causes us with graciousness and humility to say, this is what I believe, but this is not, there are some things that we're very confident about. Jesus Christ God's Son, born of a virgin, all man, all God, died for our sins, perfect life, rose again from the grave. Okay, Those are non-negotiables. Who the 144,000 are in Revelation is one of those that we can have some debate on. Okay, Not necessarily tonight, but you can disagree with me. And I won't be mad at you too long. All right? Here's the thing. The first question that kind of comes that's interesting is, who is on the list and who is not? You know, they list the 12 tribes there, right? Um, now, where do we get the 12 tribes from? Where, where is that from? Jacob's son. Okay, Jacob had his name changed to Israel, um, the one who wrestled with God. And he gets his name changed and he has 12 sons. Okay, So, those are just the listing of, of his 12 sons. And is that what that is? No. He's got a son or two that's not on there. And he's got one that's not his son. In some later lists, Joseph got removed from the list in the, in the Old Testament. And Joseph's two sons got put on the list. You might know Joseph's two sons. Manasseh and Ephraim, right? And so when that happened, some of the list would have 13 kind of names. But there were only 12 tribes. They called those two half-tribes. Okay. Now, in some lists, those two are on there, and Levi is removed because Levi's whole clan was set aside for the priesthood. And so, in the Old Testament, you've got some lists that are the official twelve of 
Israel, Jacob. You have some that are the 11 minus Joseph plus Joseph's sons. You've got some lists that are the 12 minus Joseph plus Joseph's sons minus Levi. And this list is not like any in the Old Testament. Does anybody have an eye to see who's not in the list? Dan. Dan and one other. Joseph, one of Joseph's sons not in there. Ephraim's not in there. Okay? And so you have 12 here, but there's no... This isn't in the Old Testament anywhere. Now, there are a couple of options then. One is, well, John just didn't remember. No, that's not going to be in. <laughs> he was older. He was on the island of Patmos. But this is under the divine inspiration of God. So what he's seeing is from the divine inspiration of God. So this isn't just, oh, I forgot the wrong ones in there. Okay. So the other option is, it's intentional who's in here. And there's a couple of things to understand. The two that are left out are two tribes that are very synonymous with idolatry. Dan, in the book of Judges, goes in the wrong direction and becomes an idolatrous tribe. When the, two, when the nation splits into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, one of the names of the northern kingdom, uh, as referenced in Isaiah 7, is Ephraim. And they are considered the idolatrous ones. So perhaps they're left out because of the idolatry and the others are put in, Levi and Joseph specifically, because of their faithfulness to God and what they were doing. Okay, So we don't actually know the reason. It's just interesting that this list doesn't match anything in the Old Testament. Now let's look at the number. Okay, So 144,000 is what? It's 12,000 times... Okay, what's the significance of the number 12? Besides the fact that it's 12,000 times 12. What's the significance of 12? There are 12 tribes. And throughout Scripture, the number 12, along with the number 3 and 7, are special numbers of kind of perfection. Okay? And so if you have the number 12, you have this kind of symbolic perfection. If you have 12 times 12,000, it's like saying it's the perfect perfect. Okay? The complete complete. The absolute absolute. It's the set of completion. Um, it's like you have a full set of everything and you've gotten every piece exactly in place. Now, when I was growing up, I used to see these advertisements for Civil War chess sets. Everybody remember those? And you get one chess set, one piece, every couple of months for years. And this is, you finally get the complete set. Alright? This is saying that it is the complete set. So whatever else the 144,000 means is, it's complete. Okay? And so, that's part of what we have to remember. Um... In Revelation, uh, we also have to see that what's interesting about the way it's listed, it's almost listed as the Old Testament list military battalions that are getting ready to go to war. There's this, the way it's in the original language is symbolic or re- refers to the way that Israel would have listed their groups ready to go to war. And what you have here is this group is being set aside and then later actually you're going to have this group riding behind Jesus in a similar fashion when he comes back to earth. Here's what I think the 144,000 is. 
I don't think it's just Jewish converts. Because I don't believe that... Um, I think that even though there the Jewish context is obviously here, I think it's more to it than that. I believe it's Jewish converts during the last seven years, partially because I don't take that this is just about the last seven years on earth, what we're in. And I'll explain that in a minute. I don't think it's the Jehovah's Witness because uh, not one. Right? <laughs> I don't necessarily believe. I don't believe their doctrine. I believe that this represents all who are in Christ. Okay? I'm going to go into detail a little bit more than that in just a second. But here's what I want us to get from that. I think what he is saying is that he hears these people who have been sealed and it is the complete amount of the people of God from the time that Christ rose from the grave until he comes back again. In Revelation, God seals his servants. And what's happening here is he's saying that everyone that has ever been saved or supposed to be saved or will be saved in the course of history is there. And so if you are a believer, I believe that you are represented by this 144,000. Now, here there's a distinction. That doesn't mean you are part of the 144,000 because that saying that, I'm going to explain in a minute how I think you are, but... Just saying it like that makes people think there are only 144,000. I think it's symbolic of the fullness of God. Okay? I don't think John counted every single individual. Alright, everybody number off. One, two, three. Alright, everybody from Levi, number off. Now, God could have said there are 12,000, 12,000, and you trust God. I'm not saying that there weren't. But I think it's symbolic. Now, here's the reality. If the 144,000 are symbolic of the entirety of the believers in Jesus Christ, then that means that you and I are part of that family. And that we need to take to heart everything this chapter says as being true for us. Being true about us. Your place is in the ranks of of those represented by this number. Don't conclude from the fact that on Sunday mornings you're changing diapers or teaching a five-year-old to color in the lines or handing out bulletins or just sitting on the back row. Mean that you're insignificant. Don't think that you're stuck in a dead-end job or wishing you were someplace else means that you don't matter. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your place is among the 144,000. And we ought to live like it. I was preparing today and listening um, just to some music online. And there was a song by a guy named Andrew Peterson that came on. And it just kind of hit on this idea. It says, I'll just read you part of it, I won't read you the whole song. It says, It's so easy to cash in these chips on my shoulder. So easy to loose this old tongue like a tiger. It's easy to let all this bitterness smolder just to hide it away like a cigarette lighter. It's easy to curse and to hurt and to hinder. It's easy to not have the heart to remember that I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom of God. 
I swore on the Bible to not tell a lie, but I've lied and I've lied. And I crossed my heart and I hope to die, and I've died and I've died. But if it's true that you gathered my sin in your hand and you cast it as far as the east from the west, if it's true that you put on the flesh of a man and you walked in my shoes through the shadow of death, if it's true that you dwell in the halls of my heart, that I'm not just a fool with a fancy guitar, I'm a priest and a prince in the kingdom of God. And the point of this passage is to remind these people that are going through severe persecution that they are priests and princes in the kingdom of God. Now, I believe the 144,000 symbolize all Christians from all time. Uh, Some think they're the literal Israelites to be redeemed in the final seven years. I find the other perspective compelling. Um, I think what it is, here's what I think this is. I think John is using literary devices here. Um, You know, like it's like, uh, you remember in chapter um, 4 and 5 when he's at the worship service and he hears one that sounds like a lamb and then he sees a. I mean, here's one that sounds like a lion, and then he sees one that is a lamb, like a slain lamb, right? So he hears, and then he sees, and it's the same thing. Well, look at the construction here. He hears the 144,000, and then what does he see? A multitude that he can't count. So he hears the perfect, complete set, and then he sees a multitude he can't count. I think it's the same thing, okay? I think it's the representing the same thing. And the point is, it is the complete set of those God is saving and that it is more than we can count when we get them all there. Now, there are differences between the two groups. When you just look at them from a purely literal standpoint, the first is numbered and identified with Jewish tribes. The second is innumerable and from every tribe, nation, people, and language. On the other hand, we see in 7.14 that the innumerable multitude from every tribe are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. So it seemed they would save through the Tribulation because God sealed them. That would strongly incline the identification of 144,000 towards the tribe of Israel. But, when you look at the literary structure from John 5 that I just mentioned, where he heard Jesus as a lion, then he sees Jesus as a lamb, And you look at chapter 7 where he hears the number 144,000 and then he sees an innumerable multitude. We see more evidence that the 144,000 is the same group as the innumerable. Whatever we conclude about this group is important because it pulls us forward into what happens later in the book. But whatever your determination is, um, I, I don't think number two is okay, but I think the other three are okay to think. Okay, But it does impact how you look at the rest of the book. Whatever it is, the point of it is not for us to identify the 144,000 exactly. The point is to see that God seals His people and guarantees their salvation. God saves His people. He makes them invincible when it comes to Satan taking control. So the first thing we see here is God protects His people. Here's the second thing. God receives praise for His protection. Verse 9 says, He looked and behold a great multitude no one can number from every nation, tribe, peoples, language 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, if you read that separately, you don't think of chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation. But in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, it talks about the one on the throne and the Lamb. And you see that over and over. And so here you have them clothed in white robes with palm branches at the throne and before the Lamb. No one can number the multitude. Um, doesn't seem to me that there are just a few there, right? It says that he can't even begin to count. God's mercy is incalculable. He has spread it widely. Just like we have four corners and four winds, we have every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages. And look where this is occurring. It's occurring in the exact scene as we see in chapters 4 and 5. Here's the reality. If you consider yourself part of of the family of God, someone who has followed Jesus Christ with your life, your destination is this scene. Eventually, we will be gathered around the throne and around the Lamb. Fellow believers, we will stand there one day with our white robes on, reminding us of the fact that we have been cleansed by the Lord. In 1914, it reminds us that the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Jesus into the battle. The palm branches. What does that make you think of when you hear palm branches? Besides Florida. What does it make you think of? Triumphant entry, right? It also reminds the Israelites of their temple of booths, which was a celebration of God's provision for Israel in the wilderness. And so for them, they would have been reminded, first of all, that God fulfilled His promise in rescuing us from Egypt and taking us to the promised land. When they're doing it for Jesus, it's blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. God is fulfilling His promise to take us out of bondage and deliver us with the Messiah. Here it is God is fulfilling His promise, taking us out of a sinful world into His new heaven and new earth. Those who received their reward are celebrating the triumph of Jesus. They're selling His provision on the way to the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. And what do they do? They cry out in a loud voice. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but if you're hoping that heaven's going to be a place where you can get some rest and everything will be quiet, that's not the description that Scripture gives. Alright? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice they give praise and honor and glory unto God and say salvation belongs to Him. Notice they don't say salvation is ours. Whose is it? It's God's. Because He's the only one that can do it. You and I can't save ourselves. We can't, they don't stand up and go, look what we did. They say, look how great the salvation of God is. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God saved them, so they praised God. And the angels were standing around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever." And ever. You have them ascribe seven things to God blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. What we see in chapter 7, verse 10, is that the humans praise God, and in verse 12, the heavenly host praise Him. Here's what's really cool. You don't see what's really cool about this to me? 
the angels are echoing the human praise. I mean, in fact, when the angels get ready to join in the chorus and the human beings who have been rescued by the Lamb, they cry out, salvation belongs to our God. The first thing the angels say is what? Cliff, what's the first thing they say? Amen. There we go. Alright? They say, Amen. Here's what I think is really cool. Think about this. They are gathered in heaven around the throne. And the human beings and their salvation become the reasons for the heavenly host to praise God. Think about this. One of the reasons that the angels in heaven praise God is because of what He did for you. The angels in heaven are celebrating your salvation and praising God because of what He did for you. When we get to heaven, I think we are going to be in awe of God, but I think we're going to be in awe of the way the angels are in awe of what He's done for us. And the sacrifice that He made and the salvation that came. Salvation belongs to God. Everyone stands in need of salvation because everyone deserves to be condemned. No one is commendable to God. Remember chapter 6 verse 17? Who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? The answer is nobody. The redeemed proclaim the salvation belongs to God and the angels and the elders and the living creatures say, Amen! Well, how does that happen? How do they get clothed in the white robes? Well, what's the answer? They're the ones that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb obviously there refers to the cost of Christ, the blood that He shed for us. It's not a literal washing. They didn't literally go take their garments and dip them in a pool of Jesus' blood. It means when we accept Jesus as our Savior, He washes us clean. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus died. He paid the penalty. When they trusted Him, His payment is applied to us and our sins are washed away. The innumerable multitude are believers in Jesus. People have been washed and their stain has been removed. Let's talk just for a minute about what it means that came out of the Great Tribulation. Some people think that this is the great tribulation referred to in Daniel's 70th week, the final seven years of human history. I think, this is another one of those areas we may disagree, but I think that the Daniel 70th week has been going since Jesus ascended to the Father and will continue to go until Jesus returns. I think that it's not seven years of tribulation. I think there have been close to 2,000 years of tribulation. Now, I think that it will gradually increase in intensity. But part of that comes from, it's just hard for me to tell a Somalian woman who is being raped and beaten and then killed because of her faith in Jesus. Aren't you glad you're not here when the tribulation comes? As Americans, it's easy for us to say, well, it's got to get worse. Because it's easy for us. But there are literally millions of believers right now that are in very similar situations to these people. And I don't think John wrote this book to a group of people to say, 
y'all aren't going to believe how great it's going to be a few thousand years from now. He wrote it to them for today. And so when he says they've been brought out of the great tribulation, none of these people would have thought, oh, he's talking about a couple of thousand years from now. They would have thought, he's talking about today. He's talking about if we are faithful in the midst of this, we who are believers in Jesus, we are the ones that are going to be robed in white, standing before the throne, giving praise and honor and glory unto God. Now, I don't just say that without some biblical backing. Jesus says in John 5.25 that the time for the resurrection of the dead or the last days is coming and is now here. Acts 2.16, Peter says that the prophecy of Joel concerning the last days, remember Joel says in the last days, and then he gives all this stuff all happening. What does Peter say? It is fulfilled in your midst today. In 1 Corinthians 10.11, uh, Paul says that Christians are those on whom the end of the age has come. Jesus told his disciples that tribulation would be a part of that. John 16.33, the world you will have tribulation. In Acts 14.22, using these same words, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In Revelation 1.9, John told the churches that he was their brother and partner in the tribulation. In Smyrna church, Jesus says, I know your tribulation. And then told them in 2.10 that their tribulation would be for ten days. Now, you say, but there's a word there, Pastor. It says great tribulation. And it is true that there's a word here for great tribulation. It's also in Matthew 24. But the phrase great tribulation does not exclusively refer to the final period of seven years. In 2.22, Jesus threatens to throw the church in Thyatira who commit adultery to Jeze- with Jezebel into great tribulation. Same word. This means they'll be threatened as people who are alive in John's day with the great tribulation. It seems to me, studying Scripture and understanding the words of Jesus and those that came after, that the time between Jesus' ascension and return is a period of tribulation. It's the birth pains. It's the, it's the cries of anguish. And right before the end, it does seem there will be an intense period of persecution at the very end of history. But I think it's, I think it's a mistake to say it's a literal seven years. Now, we'll have plenty of time to talk about some more of that as we go forward. My point is that when you see these people coming out of the great tribulation, what you see are people who are just followers of Jesus Christ who have endured unto the end and are there in heaven as his believers. And the point is, John tells them that God has sealed his servants to preserve them through the tribulation. God makes it so they are, though they may be killed physically, they will overcome because of their trust in him. So here's the question. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your ability to stand before God or are you trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus? Are you trusting in your ability to keep yourself from falling away or are you trusting in God who seals His servants? John 7, 15 and 17 gives us this beautiful final picture of what it will be like there. It says, Before the throne of God, they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter Him with His presence. They shall hunger no more, thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to the springs of living water. 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. This statement is a virtual catalog of biblical promises. Those who trust in Christ will receive everything God has promised and more. It's beyond anything we can ask, think, or imagine. The main point of Revelation is for Christians to see God in His glory. That glory is on display as God shows justice and mercy. And that awesome glory of God in mercy is what we see in chapter 7. He seals the saints and the saints praise Him. It means you are invincible. It means your faith is unassailable. Not because of the strength of your faith, but because of the strength of your God. John 10.29 says, My Father is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Revelation 7 is an illustration of the passage that Paul says in Romans when he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, there's that word again, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's people said, Amen. Amen.